This week on The Elucidators Decoding Global News, we go to Japan, where Shinzo Abe, the longest-serving prime minister in modern Japanese history, is stepping down after eight years in office. After Japan suffered through decades of economic stagnation and decline, Abe attempted to make major reforms in both the domestic and foreign policy arenas to get the country moving again. Has he succeeded in bringing America's most important military ally and still the world's third largest economy into the 21st century? Let us elucidate. And welcome to another episode of The Elucidators. As always, I am your host, Steve Pally. With me, as always, is my co-host, Pete Newsom. Peter, how are you? Steven, I'm doing well, man. How are you? I'm doing very well. You are not in your usual location this week. Where are you? I've been moving around a bit over mm. the last month. Like I feel like I'm never in the same place when we've been doing these the last month, but now I'm in... Malibu, California. Just for the night. <sighs> Malibu's most wanted. That is what they've always called me, but it finally makes sense because I'm finally here. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful here in Malibu. The sun sets over the ocean and everything turns purple. It's very nice. Sounds relaxing yeah. and copacetic. How's uh, Sherman Oaks, man? Sherman Oaks is chill. My son has returned to preschool after about a six-month break with a new protocol in place. So we're very happy about that. He purports to be less happy about it. He wants to know why he has to go to school every morning. And I have told him, my man, this is what you're going to be doing for the next 15 to 20 years <laughs> every yeah. weekday. So <laughs> better get used to it. Some days where that information is really difficult to swallow and yeah, somewhere along the way you hope it becomes easier to accept that. If you want to grow up to be like your dad and learn everything there is to know about international relations and be an elucidator and have your own podcast, then you're going to have to do this for something that's a lot closer to 25 to 26 years. What an incentive. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Sounds After pretty good, right? That, he was jumping out of bed with his backpack on at 4.30 a.m. ready to roll. Yeah, no, totally. Although once you get to graduate school, you don't actually necessarily have to go to school every day or even every week, uh, depending on how much TAing you have to do. Assume you could tell us more about that if you were here. <laughs> anyway, we do in a podcast, we are talking about what country this week, Pete? We're talking about Japan, Steve. Oh, Japan. One of my favorite yes. countries and a country that we've never talked about. We never talked about the land of the rising sun? We have not. Hmm. We have not. Always in reference to things like China and Taiwan and Hong Kong and the Koreas and so on, but never on its own terms. But today, we're going to rectify that. We're going to open up the very interesting subject that is mm -hmm. Japan in 2020. And we're going to do that through the vehicle of Japan's longest-serving prime minister, Shinzo Abe who, mm -hmm. as of last Friday, after months of rumors, formally announced his resignation due to ill health. That he did. He yes. suffers from ulcerative colitis. 
which is a nasty autoimmune disease, right? I think you're right about that. Yeah. Yeah. Quite painful. And his term was supposed to go until September of next year. And he's only 65, which is not that old for a politician. But I suppose that his condition had been worsening and he had been to the hospital several times in the week prior to the announcement. And basically, there had been rumblings for a while this year that Abe was having health problems and something like this might be in the offing. Here's the thing. This is actually the second time Abe has resigned as prime minister due to ill health. He was prime minister for a short while in the naughty Audis. His first stint as PM, he resigned in 2007, citing ill health at that time as well. Although at that time, his liberal democratic party, which is Japan's main political party, had suffered a crushing electoral defeat on the national level and had lost power for the first time in post-war Japan's history, basically. <laughs> so that was a good time for him to resign. It was somewhat um, politically convenient for him to yeah. resign at that moment. That's right. This time he resigns after eight years in office, which was actually the the longest period that any Japanese politician has served as a PM in yeah. modern Japan, which isn't actually that long. But yeah, just a few days prior to announcing his resignation, he had broken the record, which was actually set by his, I believe, uncle or great uncle. One his great yeah. uncle was also prime minister and had set the previous record for longest serving prime minister. Yeah, and I believe a grandfather was also a prime minister. That's right. So, so Abe, Abe comes is- from a long line of very famous Japanese politicians, lineage. I guess you could say the Kennedys or the Bushes or the Clintons, mm-hmm. something along those lines, except Japanese. Yes, and he was known as a conservative and also nationalist within the context of his liberal Democratic Party. And mm-hmm. he was also known as a hawk. So kind of, um, I guess, the Japanese version of a Ronald Reagan or something like that. Mm-hmm. There's no exact analog to American politics, but that might be the closest. And his big thing was he was into national renewal for Japan because Japan had fallen on hard times by the time he became prime minister for the second time. And we'll get into that. But he had two main policy goals, one domestic, one foreign. In domestic policy, he wanted to end the low-growth environment of post-bubble Japan and somehow find a way to reverse the country's national decline because Japan economically had been on fire post-World War II for most of the 20th century until the 90s. Mm-hmm. And then a gigantic speculative bubble burst and destroyed the Japanese economy for basically the next 20 years, where there was no growth, deflationary economics, and the country basically was going nowhere. So he tried to figure out a way to reverse those problems through a package of policy called Abenomics, like economics, except based on his name. It's a little pun. Yeah, Yeah, super cool. I don't know how that transliterates in Japanese. And the the jury is in on some of his stuff. The results were obviously complicated by what happened with the COVID pandemic, which tanked Japan's economy along with everybody else's economy in the entire world. 
And another sort of signature policy win for Abe was getting the 2020 Olympics for Tokyo. But these games were postponed earlier this year. Abe saw the Olympics as his swan song. That's right. Yeah, the capstone to Japanese national renewal under Abenomics. Um, But Mm -hmm. they got postponed (laughs) because of the pandemic and might not even happen next year, depending on how things go with the vaccine and so on. That's right. So that was kind of one big half of his policy program. The other half involved foreign policy, where Abe tried to assert Japan's global influence and beef up its military defenses. And this is important because Japan has always punched below its weight when it comes to military power and foreign policy, and that's by by design. After World War II, Japan became a pacifist nation, formerly, Mm -hmm. by virtue of its peace constitution, which was imposed by the victorious allied powers, particularly the United States. Abe wanted to revise this constitution to remove Article 9, which renounces war as a sovereign right of the nation. So the Japanese constitutionally are not allowed to go to war. Under any circumstances? Well, so it's a little bit more complicated than that. <laughs> but <laughs> What? In international relations, things get more complicated? Than yeah. Just unfortunately, it's all shades of gray. And okay. even things that seem very straightforward aren't. And we will explain why. As it happens, he did deploy Japanese troops abroad for the first time since World War II in various places in the Middle East as peacekeepers. So if you call them peacekeepers, then you can do it. Yes. That is one of the many loopholes that he made use of (laughs) during his time in office. (laughs) And, you know, Japanese foreign policy certainly changed under Abe's tenure. So we're talking about Abe today because I think his career really encapsulates a lot of the important features of modern Japan, particularly in the last 10 years or so, a lot of the changes that Japan has undergone after being the world's second largest economy and quote-unquote vice president of the world to the United States during the 20th century, especially during the Cold War. Pretty incredible that Japan is the second largest economy in the it world. no longer is. It's uh, actually the third. It's the third. Uh, and we'll get into that. <laughs> okay. And this is one of the reasons for the revised posture, right? It's because of the rise of China. But before we do that, I think we should get into a little bit of Japanese history and discuss what the deal is with Japan. I think everybody knows about Japan. You know, we have got anime, we've got the electronics. <laughs> if we're introducing the idea of Japan to someone with this podcast, I'm very uh, <laughs> excited. What yes. a moment. Yeah, video games. So Japan is a small chain, or it's not small, it's actually a large chain of islands off the coast of mainland China, about the size of California. So not small. California's pretty big. Yeah. However, it has 126 million people, which is three times California's population. <laughs> okay, that's... That's crazy. (laughs) That's a lot. Yeah. Pretty densely populated urban areas, in particular, like Tokyo, which has been the world's largest city. I'm not sure if it still is, but it has, Greater Tokyo has something like 30 to 40 million people in it, depending on how you slice it. And that is basically the entire population of California. 
Yes. California has vast areas that are kind of unpopulated, but it's a trip to think of one single city having all of California's population in it. it. Right. And that city is Tokyo and environs, which is ridiculous. Like I've been to Tokyo and getting from one end of Tokyo to the other takes an entire day on the train. (laughs) It's like, it's, it's really quite large. Yeah. So yeah, massive conurbation, megalopolis, really. Here's the thing about the population. The vast majority of the Japanese population is ethnic Japanese. Only 2% are migrants against 13% in the United States by way of comparison. Mm-hmm. And much higher than that in some place like Canada, for instance. So very homogenous ethnically. Another notable fact demographically about Japan is it's the world's oldest country and getting older. Yeah, so... I think 28% of the population is 65 or older. Yes. And only um, less than 60% are between the ages of 15 and 64. Right, which is your workforce. And so that's a big problem (laughs) economically. Yeah, the Japanese live a really long time, which is both good and bad. It's good because they get to enjoy life longer. It's bad because they are no longer, quote-unquote, producers. Uh, They're consumers, and your tax base kind of degrades because you need to support them with health care and pensions. And there are fewer and fewer people available to do that that are working age proportionally. Mm-hmm. Overall, the Japanese population hit its peak in 2005 and has been in decline ever since. So it is a country in demographic decline, incontrovertibly. And Abe's policies were in part meant to reverse that demographic decline. Even, do, even though the Japanese population is aging rapidly and declining, it still has the world's third largest economy. And it had the world's second largest economy for the last quarter of the 20th century mm-hmm. and the first decade of the 21st century. Again, it is a formerly pacifist state militarily, but it does have the Japan Self-Defense Forces, which is its Army, Navy, and Air Force. They're just for self-defense. It's right there in the name, right, Pete? <laughs> I guess it is. And self-defense is a form of military skirmish of course so sure was that allowed for in the deal that they struck with the u.s after world war ii like if they were attacked they could defend themselves good question this was actually a major point of contention within japan Hmm. so the americans i think were actually okay with the japanese having some kind of uh military force because the japanese were important american allies and it would be good if they could help in their own defense Mm -hmm. The thing is that the Japanese themselves found the idea of fighting another war ever immediately after World War II very controversial. And so this was like a huge bone of contention politically for roughly the first 10 years after World War II. And eventually the Supreme Court found that it was okay to have armed forces in the context of self-defense. But like this was in no way like a foregone conclusion. It took actually a lot of like contentious politics and protests and riots even Mm -hmm. because the Japanese had such a terrible time (laughs) in World War II. 
Yeah, they're the only com- the only country to ever have been attacked by a nuclear bomb, right? Yep, twice. So that's a big part of it. But even before, you know, they had suffered the atomic bombings at mm-hmm. Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they had been bombed with conventional munitions for years. You know, Tokyo had been firebombed. Um, and millions of their soldiers had been killed by the Americans and the Chinese and the Soviets. So, yeah, uh, they brought they it on in- themselves, but uh, they had a very bad time in World War II and were sick of the idea of yeah. um, ever doing it again. Became disinclined to fight Here's more. the thing, though. Yeah, so, yes, military force controversial. However, the self-defense forces are, by some measurements, the world's second most capable air and naval forces. <laughs> <laughs> that is so crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. More than, more than any European nation who, like, is not constitutionally bound to not have a military. Yeah, so it's a little bit less crazy when you consider the military budget is kind of informally capped at 1% of GDP. But Mm -hmm. Japan's GDP is still quite large in absolute terms. So that 1% actually buys a lot of stuff, number one. Number two, two, the stuff that it buys is the United States' best stuff, our most advanced military hardware. So they're buying that. Yeah. regardless of Article 9 of their Constitution. Yes, because it's all for self-defense, and we want them to have it. <laughs> I see. Yeah, the, the Japanese are really the linchpin of our entire Asian security apparatus. It's, you know, our bases in Japan in particular, naval, air force, and army. Hmm. We, we maintain 50,000 troops there. And so it's important that like those troops be supported, right? Right. And Japan have some capability. This was especially important when during the Cold War, when the Soviet Union actually actively threatened Japan. I didn't know that happened. The Soviet it Union did. threatened Japan? Yeah, they absolutely did. And the Chinese too, although the Chinese were not capable at that point in time. The right. Soviets absolutely were. Anyway, the Japanese have four aircraft carriers and are currently retrofitting a big ship to become its fifth aircraft carrier. Five aircraft carriers will be second most in the world behind the United States. Number three is France with four. Incredible. Um, Yeah. To be clear, the Japanese still do not participate in combat operations but they are now doing peacekeeping and sort of reconstruction, civilian reconstruction. They're well-equipped anytime they want to join uh, yeah. any type of conflict. Yeah, and the idea is they're well-equipped, so hopefully they won't have to do it. Right. You know, they, they want to be able to, to deter any problems that might arise. So that's kind of the overview of Japan. Historically, Japan has a fascinating history. We can get into a, at least a little bit of it here just because it's fun. Mm-hmm. The Japanese claim to have the world's longest continuous royal dynasty, starting 2,500 years ago and continuing to present day. It's the same family. Crazy. And <laughs> so this dude, Emperor Naruhito, ascended the chrysanthemum throne in May 2019 as the 126th emperor in the Japanese royal lineage. 126. <laughs> <laughs> it's like his dad yeah, yeah, 124 yeah. times. 
I don't know if it's all been father to son. There's probably been some movement in there over the the millennia. I hope so. Yeah, but his dad abdicated and Naruhito ascended, kicking off the Rewa era. Whenever there's a new emperor, they the Japanese have name the era something new. Rewa means beautiful harmony or something like that in Japanese. And everything which, since May 2019 really has been just beautiful harmony. Yeah, especially in the United States. That's a very <laughs> properly named era. I guess it's aspirational, you know? Sure. Yeah, they're working towards it, you know? Uh-huh. Um, We're going to get there. Japan, for many years, was cut off from the rest of the world by design. It was feudal, so kind of like uh, Knights in Shining Armor, except the Japanese version of that. Different fiefdoms and kind of warring clans and so on, separated from the rest of the world. However... Japan was also the first Asian nation to modernize so that it could compete against the Europeans and the Americans in the mid to late 19th century. This was very early. And it happened because of something called the Meiji Restoration in 1868, where a bunch of modernizers on the side of the emperor conducted a civil war against the shogunate, which was kind of like a military dictatorship run by the samurai. And if you've ever seen the Tom Cruise vehicle, The Last Samurai, that's what this is about. He fights on the side of the samurai, and it doesn't go well. Spoiler alert. (laughs) He stops drinking, though, which was a good thing for him personally. Eventually, yeah. No, he... (laughs) Half of the movie is him just yelling, Sake! Because he's tortured by demons from the Civil War or something. I don't know. It's, It's an all right movie from like 15 years ago. Anyway, after the Meiji Restoration, the Japanese start learning very quickly from the European powers. They import technical experts and engineers. They import firearms makers. And they start building modern, like, ships to staff their navy. So they waste no time. And pretty quickly, they're winning fights against the Russians and the Chinese. They crushed the Russians in the Russia-Japanese War in, I believe, 1904, which was a big surprise to the Russians and everybody else. They also fight a war with the Chinese in, I think, the late 19th century that China was expected to win, but did not, (laughs) handily. (laughs) Uh, They ended up colonizing Korea in the early 20th century, and then they colonized northern China in the years prior to World War II. So they have an empire in mainland Asia. And they're basically running the Nazi playbook, except in Asia. It's militarist Japan. Wow. And they have a cult of the emperor and a cult of the army, and it is all about taking over and running Asia. Hmm. And they are nasty about it. We could go into more detail, but there's no reason to. They conducted a lot of war crimes against the Koreans and the Chinese and the Americans and the British and the Filipinos and basically everybody in the neighborhood. A really dramatic difference from the post-World War II stance towards the world. Oh, yeah. That Japan had. (laughs) Yeah, it's because World War II is such an unmitigated disaster for the Japanese. Right. Right. They are nuked. They are forced to unconditionally surrender. Well, it's not quite unconditional. There's one condition. The condition is they keep the emperor. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So, you know, they have to keep that unbroken and they did 
But that was the only condition. Everything else, the Americans wipe away. They take over completely. And Douglas MacArthur, General Douglas MacArthur, actually runs Japan for a couple years at the end of World War II. They call him the White Shogun. Crazy. Did he move there and live there? Yeah. Yeah, he was in Tokyo. (laughs) Whoa. Crazy, right? Yes. So it was occupied by the Americans who imposed the peace constitution on the Japanese. And after that happens, Japan becomes the United States' closest Asian ally with the Treaty of Mutual Cooperation and Security in 1951. And this is the starting point for being the quote-unquote vice president of the world. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it doesn't start that way. Uh, they basically start as uh, a giant military base for the Americans to try to get come to grips with the communist Chinese and the Soviets. So the USA establishes military bases all over the Japanese archipelago, many of which still exist. And as of 2019, we have 50,000 troops stationed there. Is that the most troops we have stationed anywhere in the world? Uh, It might be. The exception might be South Korea. Right, the demilitarized zone. (laughs) As it were, yeah. (laughs) But it's certainly, if not the single largest number of American troops in a single country, it's probably number two. But I think it might be number one, yeah. It's very essential to our military uh, strategy in posture in Asia. Exactly. So from there, we get the Japanese economic miracle, which is just what it sounds like. So Japan got destroyed in World War II. They rebuild for the next 10 years. And then starting in 1955 and running until 1991, the Japanese reindustrialize very quickly and grow into the world's second largest economy from nothing, from the ruins, right? And in a process that's kind of similar to what happened in Germany, but even bigger than that. Mm-hmm. So they use what's called a, a development strategy called export-led growth. So this is the idea that you basically go up the value chain and you start with cheap stuff like clothing, and then you produce more and more valuable stuff for export, and you earn more and more foreign exchange, which means that uh, you grow a middle class, and then pretty soon you have your own consumers that can buy your own stuff, and you're a developed country. And that's almost exactly what happened in Japan. They made it to high-tech consumer products very quickly, starting in the 60s, Mm. starting with things like cameras, and then moving into TVs, computers, and video games. Right. Sony PlayStation. Sure, Sony, Nintendo, Nintendo. Sega. (laughs) All the stuff we grew up with, basically. Yeah, Mitsubishi, yeah. Yeah. And on the way to doing this, their national strategy is to establish conglomerates, industrial conglomerates, that cooperate very closely with the government. And in particular, there's a ministry that does this called MITI, M-I-T-I, the Ministry of International Trade and Industry. And so, basically, the government picks national champions. So, it helps these companies grow very large with uh, favorable loans and tax breaks and stuff like this. Not all of these loans end up being good. And this will become important later because it eventually comes back to haunt the Japanese. But it works really well for a really long time. And this is also when the Japanese establish a social contract whereby... You have the Japanese salaryman, is what they were called. These guys in suits 
who work for the same company for life, mm-hmm. literally like 45 years, same company, but you wear the same suit, you get on the train, you work 12-hour days, six days a week, forever. Right. Like and literally forever. Drink, <laughs> drink a massive amount of whiskey every night. You drink a lot, and you have to like go drink with your boss. It's like r- very rigid hierarchy in corporate Japan that still exists to this day, although it's starting to break down. So this works really well up until the point where it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Like so many things. Yeah, as is the case with so many things. Uh, This comes to a crashing halt in 1991 when the Japanese stock market, the Nikkei, crashes really hard. And... We get the quote-unquote lost decade, which is actually more like the lost 20 years. This is a function of too much easy money from the Bank of Japan for too long, leading to asset price inflation, especially in land prices. So basically, the government is pumping money into the economy, causing the economy to run hot and boost growth. But that money has to go somewhere, and it ends up going into asset prices, so stock prices and land prices. Stop me if this sounds familiar. This has actually happened here, too. <laughs> um, <laughs> not quite the same way, but some similarities. It got to the point where a square meter of commercial office space in the Ginza district of Tokyo, which is the fanciest shopping district in Tokyo, was worth a quarter million dollars. In 1989. <laughs> <laughs> That's three feet, three feet by three feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't so, know what they were selling in there. <laughs> but A 12-foot by 12-foot room was worth a million dollars. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it was like Jeez. completely divorced from all economic reality. Uh-huh. Just because there was so much money in the system. And the bubble pops because there's not enough stuff actually being made to support this, right? Even though Japan is the world's second largest economy, even though they make a ton of stuff, even though it's high tech, all of that, it's like they did a lot of dumb things (laughs) from a economic management perspective and it blew up in their face. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And after it does, Japan is stuck in a process that economists have now named Japanification. It was so bad that they actually named it after the country. (laughs) Yeah. And Japanification basically means your country is stuck in a situation of having low economic growth. So they were stuck at 1% growth between 1992 and 2001. You have deflationary economics because nobody wants to spend money. So everybody is scared and they're just hanging out to their money. So there's no liquidity in the economy. And basically, uh, you enter a depression, more or less, an economic depression. Deflation is especially bad because it means that currency becomes more and more valuable. And if currency is becoming more valuable and you know it's becoming more valuable, you're less likely to spend it, number one. Number two... It also means that anybody who has debts is going to get wiped out because those debts grow over time and there's no way to pay them back. So it's really dangerous from an economic perspective. Um, It got to the point where the Japanese were using negative interest rates 
to try to penalize people for saving money. So this is a way of saying, yeah, you can have money in a bank account or whatever, but we're actually going to charge you to do that. Like it's going to be wor- <laughs> it's going to be worth less next year than it is this year without you doing yeah. anything. Yeah, because otherwise everybody would just sit on their cash because mm-hmm. it's actually getting more valuable. So they need to actually undo that actively wow. and penalize people for holding onto their cash. That's and absurd. finally the final sort of negative aspect of Japanification is it comp- a total collapse in economic productivity growth and in demographics. So during this lost decade, the Japanese people literally become depressed, like as a country, as a collection of individuals. There's like books and movies about this. The Japanese people, the birth rate plummets during this right. time and has right. never recovered for instance. And a lot of the sort of create creativity and dynamism that had driven the economy to this point goes away. Did people leave and move to other countries or just stop producing but stay they, there? They kind of just stopped producing. I don't think many Japanese emigrated and certainly nobody came to Japan during this time. That is an interesting thing for a country to go f- through as an entire nation. Yeah, just like a major 20-year funk, basically. Right. Where they're just in their room and they don't want to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> because We've what's all the been point? There. What's yeah, the point? What's you the make point, money, man? it won't be worth much next year. Actually, you no make one... money. And why make money? Because the money you already have is going to be worth more next year. It's it's actually the opposite of that. And that's what makes it even worse. <laughs> well, then the government, but the government introduced that negative inflation, right? They tried. They They tried all kinds of stuff. And this is where Abe comes into the picture. Okay. Right? He he comes to power during this lost period and tried to reverse it with Abenomics. Right? And there were what what were called three arrows. And I guess his metaphorical macroeconomic policy quiver. It's a weird metaphor, but Uh that's what he called it. The three arrows were to generate inflation, improve productivity and innovation, and reverse that demographic decline, which is exactly what you'd want to do to get like undo the stuff I just described. It's just doing the opposite of all of that. (laughs) Right. Generating inflation means your money loses value in its bank in the bank account over the years. So it drives you to want to make more. Correct. It drives you to want to invest it productively to beat uh-huh. inflation. And uh-huh. it also is indicative of a growing economy. Because the more stuff you have in the economy, the more money you need. And that's basically how in, part of how inflation works. Okay. Now, the verdict on his policies is mixed, but generally positive. From what I've read, I'm no Japan expert. But I've read a lot of people who are. <laughs> Sounds like you need to undergo some Japanification. Yeah, I'd, I've been there, man. Just like most of my 20s, Japanification. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lots of video games. Playing Nintendo. <laughs> in that case, in, in, that, in that era, it was more PlayStation. But yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Anyway, the idea was, yeah, okay. Abenomics, like, not all of this stuff worked. But at least he, like, tried stuff. At least he tried to do something. And some of it did work. So that's a lot better than what had happened for the last 20 years prior to that. Nothing worked. 
nothing worked. Like, and, and like the Japanese were so literally depressed that they just didn't even try anything for a while. (laughs) So Abe's team did manage to restore a little bit of inflation via extremely aggressive action at the Bank of Japan. So printing a ton of money up to and including buying up Japanese stocks on the Japanese stock market, the Nikkei. Mm Mm-hmm to get the economy going. The the national bank was buying stocks, which is kind of crazy. And by the way, it's something that not the U.S. Treasury, but the Federal Reserve has started to do here in the United States to support corporate debt and things like that. So that's on the monetary side of things. On the fiscal side of things, meaning like passing spending packages and stuff like that, it didn't work as well because Japan is still a very conservative country, budget-wise. And Abe's party was not willing to run a budgetary deficit of any kind. So he wasn't able to pass that much spending. He personally would have liked to, but his party wouldn't support him. Yeah, he was gung-ho. Like, this guy, even though he was a conservative, and he came in as a conservative, he was kind of a Reagan figure, in that he wanted to kind of break the old system and reform everything. At least that's, you know, what he ended up trying to do. And, of course, Reagan's effects can be debated (laughs) and should be on the United States. But, yeah, yeah, you could definitely, you know, at a minimum, you can say that Reagan changed things a lot, right? (laughs) You can say that. For for, for good or ill, depending on how you see things. Sure. Well, he introduced trickle-down economics, the most effective economic strategy ever. Yeah, that's right. And we're, we're seeing how well that's worked 40 years down the road. Mm-hmm. Anyway, additional reforms that Abe managed to push through. He reformed the agricultural sector and signed major free trade d- agreements with the EU. Not just the EU, he also kept the Trans-Pacific Partnership alive after the United States withdrew during the Trump administration. So he was a big free trader and has kept major trade frameworks in Asia alive that the United States started under Obama but did not finish basically right <laughs> Japan has kind of stepped up and occupied the economic linchpin in of the you, the free trade regime in Asia he also reformed corporate governance he made uh, corporations much more responsive he got rid of like these old guys who wanted to do things the old way you know, a lot of them were forced to retire, basically. Hmm. Uh, he started to break down the links between the governments and the big corporations. And most importantly, he improved the labor force by doing two things. One is by improving women's rights in Japan, which had been really abysmal, frankly, and also increasing immigration, which has always been taboo in Japan. But he actually made major inroads in both of these areas. During his tenure, female, the female employment rate rose from 66% to 76%, which is a huge deal Yeah, if you think about it. That's a lot. increase from 2012 to 2020. 20? Big deal. Yeah, huge deal. And he did that by doing things like providing child care and passing laws against sexual harassment. Again, not something you expect from a, like, conservative politician, right? Sure. But he saw what was necessary. Yeah, exactly. And on top of this, the number of foreign workers 
they're still low, but they almost double in the five years between 2013 and 2018 from 800,000 to 1.4 million. Now, this is, again, not a lot for a country of 126 million, but that's like huge progress. Yeah, if if that trend continued, it's a dramatic new chapter. It's a trend that has to continue. <laughs> and right. he recognized that. <laughs> He's literally like, losing population. Yeah. yeah. Like, you have to replace that population. And if it's not going to be immigrants, it's going to have to be robots or something, which they're also right. working on. They certainly have actually a need for a larger workforce. They need new yeah. people working there. The, the Japanese have gotten to the point where there are corporations designing robots to carry elderly people up and down the stairs. My goodness. Like anthropomorphic robots that can carry you in their arms, you know? So that's not where you want to be as a country. So Abe opened up the floodgates and people started to come in. And this is in a country that, I mean, to put it nicely, is deeply suspicious of foreigners traditionally. Any foreigner. It's it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of anti-immigration in the U.S. And the people who are pro-immigration paint the anti-immigration stance as xenophobic and, you know, prejudiced, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of truth there. You don't really hear that said about Japan very frequently, but they clearly have a very strong bias towards non-ethnic Japanese people moving into their country. Oh, yeah. It's starting to change, but it's still... Just like it's very deep. And the reason why you don't hear about anti-immigrant bias in Japan is because up until very recently, nobody talked about immigration at all in Japan. Mm. Like it literally wasn't a topic. <laughs> <laughs> like people were not encouraged to immigrate. You are not allowed to stay there. They didn't want you there. Abe opened up five-year work visas that a lot of people from elsewhere in Asia started to avail themselves of. So Vietnamese, Chinese, Koreans, Australians, and so on. Japan has excellent universities that are very affordable, and it has an excellent job market, and it needs people to work. So there's good reason to do this. Yeah. Um, Abe also passed Japan's first law against hate speech, Hmm. which was usually directed against foreigners, right? Hmm. (laughs) That's a big deal, too. Like, that never would have happened if not for Abe. Interesting. Yeah. Now, you know, we we have to talk about uh, the COVID response if we're talking about Abe's economic legacy. As you said, he is actually at his career's nadir in popularity right now. Right. Right. Yes. Because Japan kind of botched COVID. And it it did pretty well early on, but this seems to have been mostly luck and a function of the fact that the Japanese wear masks habitually. As it turns out, infections are growing pretty fast in Tokyo now. And so the Japanese population have really soured on him. On the other hand, COVID has also, I think, made big strides in busting up that Japanese corporate culture of long hours at the office. Because guess what? You can't go to the office anymore. <laughs> and no one's willing to be on Zoom for 12 hours. No. no. So by, by necessity, like a lot of these things are getting shaken up during the COVID era. 
and getting rid of that horrible corporate culture that nobody likes, but was basically forced to endure for decades. And a lot of the sexism and racism that went along with it. Hmm. It's a legacy of the previous system that is being destroyed by the new conditions, right? Right. So on the economic side, on the economic and social side of things, Abe has a pretty positive record overall. It's like you know there haven't been too many successful reformers in Japanese history, right? Uh, other than the the guys who did the Meiji Restoration, right? Yeah, and he uh, came along after twenty years of pure stagnation and actually tried some stuff, and someone had to do. He that. tried a lot, yeah, and got a lot done in foreign and military po- policy. He also made some big changes. In particular, he loosened the restrictions on military force that have been integral to Japanese foreign policy and the Japanese national identity since World War II. Mm. And he wasn't able to get rid of Article 9, but this is big. Japan is now allowed to actively defend allies, which they're calling collective self-defense. That's frequently Uh, what starts wars or what wars consist of, right? It's like absolutely <laughs> help defend an ally. That's how world both world wars started actually. Oh, there you go. Yeah, World War 1 is usually pointed to as, you know, being started by alliance systems sort of uh, creating a domino effect. Right. Collective self-defense. But yes, um, that is how a lot of wars start. And now Japan can fight in a war after one of its allies is attacked. And the use case for this that the Japanese were thinking of is if the North Koreans attack the Americans or the South Koreans, which is another Japanese ally, even though they're at loggerheads right now, Japan would not be able to legally respond Right. Uh, up until 2016 when this law passed. But it took two years to pass this law. And again, protests, riots, literal fighting. And the legislator, like people were fist fighting in the legislature. <laughs> They're like, this is what we don't want to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we don't want to punch people in the face do like this. Do you see how yeah. much this sucks? Let's not yeah. do this with missiles. Yeah. So a sizable portion of the citizenry remains opposed to expanding Japan's military rights and yeah. role in the world. Yeah, it's still controversial. The thing is that the Japanese now overwhelmingly support the military as an institution, 90%. And this has not always been the case. And the main reason for this was that the military helped rescue Japan from the 2011 Fukushima disaster, which killed 22,000 people after a massive earthquake, followed by a tsunami, followed by a reactor meltdown. I see. So the, popul- the military came in and deployed a hundred thousand people and rescued a bunch of people. And I think people really appreciated that for obvious yeah. reasons. So the population sees the military as a potential rescue slash civil institution that can help within Japan itself. Yeah, they performed admirably and yeah. actually saved a lot of lives. And I think that was a real eye opener for folks. It's like, oh, these guys are professional. They're really good. And this is something that we want, you know? <laughs> like, there's a reason why we have these guys. Right. And it was a natural disaster in this case, but it's like, yeah, that's self-defense. Right. It's like, we need 100,000 people who are really highly organized and have vehicles. But that's a very different thing. Like, so 
the phrase supporting the military in that context is such a different thing from supporting like fighting in other countries. You're not wrong. Yeah, you're 100% right about that. And I think that there's a difference between supporting the military as an institution and supporting the military being deployed to like the Korean Peninsula, right? Yeah, or even weapons entering the picture. Like, yes, <laughs> we're not talking about using weapons in the context of post Fukushima disaster. Nevertheless, these are big changes. Mm-hmm. And on top of this, the defense budget has been gradually increasing. And the Japanese are starting to modernize their military by buying the latest and greatest planes from the US and building and buying their own new ships, uh, including mm-hmm. new destroyers. And that aircraft carrier uh, I mentioned, mm-hmm. they're turning, I think, uh, a big battleship into an aircraft carrier. So that's military. Yeah. <laughs> All for peace, of course. Certainly. <laughs> Peacekeeping missions. Peace through strength, in particular. Here's the thing. The Japanese have powerful enemies in the area. Two of those enemies are China and North Korea. A third, which is more of a frenemy, is South Korea. So Japan, I I said earlier, basically committed a lot of war crimes, especially against the Chinese and the Koreans in World War II, and never really formally apologized for them Hmm. to either country. They've been back and forth. They've paid indemnities that are kind of reparations, but they're not called reparations. They're like special loans. So it's like they've kind of skirted the issue, but they've never admitted guilt. They've expressed regret for what happened, which is not quite the same thing. (laughs) Right. It's like a lot of like very careful semantics that have not really satisfied the Chinese or the Koreans for what happened. And it's complicated, right? Because the Japanese have actually really helped both the Chinese and the Koreans in the post-war era with money and support and investment. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're so saying maybe we don't need to revisit these old things because we've had this period of friendship yeah. and support in the interim. Yeah. We've helped you guys. Like you're just bringing this up for your own domestic pro- political reasons. Like you're waving the bloody shirt. Like we should move past this. And it's kind of like, yeah, but like, why don't you formally apologize? Right, you could just apologize. Things? Yeah, like the Germans formerly apologized to Israel and they paid reparations, mm-hmm. right? And the Japanese have re- expressed regret and they've done special loans and funds for victims, but that is not quite the same thing. Yeah, they have not said they're sorry. And this is a sticking point because people want to hear that the Japanese are sorry. Like, they really want to hear it. Right. Uh, and the Japanese do not seem to want to say it. <laughs> it's interesting, I think. It's very interesting. willing to do so much to advance their goals. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very interesting, and there's a huge literature on this in political science because it's kind of a mystery, especially against the German case. I mean, Japanese culture is one of great formality and sense of honor, right? Correct. And so this could be 
tied up in the in the idea of like, do you lose face by apologizing? Yeah, that's part of, that is certainly a popular explanation. Japanese culture is also a culture of continuity, Hmm. right? Remember that 2,500 year imperial (laughs) lineage? Yep. So if you admit wrongdoing at any point, you're still in the same lineage. Still the same continuity, right? (laughs) Yeah, but when you look at what they were like pre-World War II as compared to post, there's like a massive discontinuity there, which does make it mysterious. There is. Makes it Except mysterious. Except for the emperor. Except for that. <laughs> However, you, like you said, is it makes sense that there's literature questioning why Japan doesn't just apologize because it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, and Abe wanted good relations with the Chinese and Koreans. He actually really did, and he worked for it, but... He did not apologize, and he did not stop visiting the Yakasune Shrine Mm. to Japanese war deaths in World War II. A lot of those war deaths include war criminals, (laughs) and the Chinese and Koreans don't like this for obvious reasons. It is something like the Germans, you know, visiting a shrine to Adolf Hitler, right? It's not quite the same thing, but you could make that argument. And I think the Chinese and Koreans have. Yeah, that would not go over well for good reasons. Yeah, and this is the prime minister doing it. I see. Yeah, and this was a guy who was really trying to like improve relations. You know, certain there are still certain sticking points in Japanese culture and society that, you know... Uh, have not been surmounted yet, and that's one of them. Are we going to get a brand new prime minister who breaks the mold? I doubt it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, in South Korea, there's been a movement to boycott Japanese products and really like the initiation of a trade war over a dispute over Japanese war crimes against comfort women, which were Korean women who were forced into sexual slavery by the Japanese occupying forces in World War II. Hmm. And the Japanese established a fund to pay, again, reparations to the victims. Hmm. But th- this is a long-going dispute, and it's running hot again in South Korea. And it. it's gotten to the point where half of South Koreans polled consider the Japanese an enemy. Wow, um, primarily this over movie. this issue of the comfort women. Yeah, and I think a lot of other historical animosities. But again, this number moves around a lot, and it depends on kind of what's being talked about at, ev- at any given time. It always, it hasn't always been at half. It's been much lower than that in the past. That's South Korea. North Korea is constantly threatening Japan, <laughs> and the United States isn't doing much about it. The Trump administration, you know, has basically watched the North Koreans launch missile tests and conduct nuclear tests. Well, no no nuclear tests on Trump's watch, but mili- but missile launches for sure and has basically done nothing about it, which is not great uh, as far as the Japanese are concerned because we're supposed to be protecting them against this. <laughs> well, I mean, what would the US do? It wouldn't do anything uh, they- militarily, right? Not militarily, but they could respond diplomatically. They could increase sanctions. They could, you know, station naval forces 
they could do stuff like that. North Korea is already under U.S. sanctions, is that correct? Yes, but they could be tightened even further. There are things the U.S. has done in the past that it is no longer doing when Mm. the North Koreans behave provocatively. Got it. Kim Jong-un is Trump's buddy. Yeah, exactly. Trump wants to make a deal with Kim Jong-un and hasn't, (laughs) but he's still holding out hope. Fourth time's a charm. What it really is, is he just doesn't care. He doesn't care about the Japanese particularly, nor the alliance system. That's not his main focus, as we've discussed many times. And yeah, it's just not a priority. And the Japanese see this. It's, It's not like they're not paying attention. Right. On the other hand, Trump does care about what China is doing, (laughs) (laughs) which is steadily expanding its military footprint. And we've talked about this on the show many times in the context of Hong Kong, Taiwan, the South China Sea, and so on. The main flashpoint between China and Japan involves the Senkaku Islands, which are an island chain claimed by Japan, China, and Taiwan. Hmm that was nationalized by Japan in 2012. So Japan now says that those islands are part of Japan? Yes. And basically, the Chinese really don't like this, so they invade or conduct incursions on Japanese airspace near these islands, basically on a weekly basis on like a set schedule. (laughs) (laughs) And they send boats very close to the islands, right? daring the Japanese to do something about it. Exactly, yeah. It's the same stuff we see in the Eastern Mediterranean between the Greeks and the Turks, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, you better move. I'm walking towards you, swinging my arms. You better move, you better move. (laughs) It's your fault if you get hit. (laughs) I'm just swinging my arms. (laughs) Schoolyard stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, But they're doing it, and the Japanese don't like it. So Abe basically had a plan to station 10,000 Japanese troops on various various islands in the East China Sea. This is not the South China Sea, it's the East China Sea, so it's closer to Japan. And he wanted troops and military bases on all these islands, because that's what the Chinese are doing. The Chinese are getting so much stronger militarily. They're a huge threat. And the Japanese have to respond as pacifists, it's not easy, yeah. right? <laughs> and just to clarify, Abe did want to lift Article 9 altogether, right? He did. Yeah, that was his big goal for his like foreign policy. Right. And he, he was not able to do it. Have Japan not be limited in any way militarily. He wanted Japan to be a normal country. Sure. Quote, unquote. None of this pacifist stuff. There's no other country on Earth that does this, especially not a big, important country like Japan. Right. Which it very clearly is. It's like, what are we doing? Like, why are we doing this? We have enemies in the neighborhood that are expanding. It's like, yes, I understand that we had a bad go of it 70 years ago, (laughs) but that was quite a while ago. (laughs) Yeah. The Chinese are doing what they're doing. We have to do something about it if the United States won't. And I am sympathetic to this viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Yeah. What Abe did manage to accomplish is closer defense ties to India and Australia. And in particular, Australia. The Japanese are now building advanced warships for Australia. 
Oh, wow. And they're calling this the quad powers or the quadrilater- quadrilateral alliance when you of include, democracies. When you include the USA. Yeah. India, Japan, Australia, USA. That is taking shape around China as the Chinese behave very provocatively. And that, if you ask me, is a pretty good group to roll with against China should the need ever arise. Yep. And there's also the question of nuclear deterrence. Japan has never had nukes, has it? Has not, and has a unique history as being the only country that has ever been nuked. And as such, it has always worked towards total nuclear disarmament. And that's kind of been its big push on the international stage, working with the IAEA to promote the non-proliferation treaty and so on. Hmm. And it relied on the United States' extended deterrence. So this idea that the United States would respond with its nuclear arsenal Mm -hmm. to protect Japan against, for instance, North Korea missile launches. Mm Mm-hmm. North Korea decided to nuke Tokyo for some reason. Yeah. Uh, But this is not as certain as it used to be. And Trump has openly speculated about Japan and South Korea developing their own nukes so the United States can exit the picture. Just peace out. So Trump doesn't really care one way or the other, but he's, he would be fine with Japan being a military power. Yeah, he doesn't seem to care. It would be like, not our responsibility anymore. Exactly. Yeah, he wants to withdraw troops from Japan and South Korea. We have a ton of troops Mm -hmm. in both countries. We have probably approaching 100,000 troops between those two countries Mm -hmm. just sitting there, as far as he's concerned. And he's like, why are we paying for this? Why are these troops there? Let's bring the troops home. This is dumb. They can do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. Let's not worry about it. (laughs) That's the way he thinks. And a lot of people agree with them. Sure. It's like, why can't these countries just be normal countries and get nuclear weapons? You know, the reason is we don't want nuclear pro- proliferation, right? But these are countries that we like. <laughs> so, sure. <laughs> unlike Iran, for instance. So, yeah. shouldn't that be fine? <laughs> Benefits the whole world for there to be fewer nuclear weapons, period. Yes. And that has always been the Japanese argument. And they, again, they know how bad nuclear weapons are firsthand in a way that no other country does. They uniquely know that, yes. They uniquely know that. And hopefully it stays unique. Indeed. Um, On the other hand, Japan has really advanced nuclear technology. They're the only country that can enrich uranium and reprocess plutonium, which are the two fuels you can use to build nukes. Hmm. Uh, They've mastered both technologies and can do both easily but they have no nuclear weapons. Every other country that has that tech builds nukes. Seems quite enlightened. Yes. That's one way of thinking about it. <laughs> Another is, yeah, they got nuked. So, yeah, I don't know how much enlightenment it is and more just uh, understanding what it's like to get nuked. Right. Enlightenment as a result of that experience. Yeah. If they wanted to, they could probably build a nuclear arsenal in a year or two. Right. It wouldn't be hard. And this is super unlikely in the near or midterm. Like within the next 5, 10, 15 years, almost definitely not going to happen. But if China continues to threaten and the North Koreans continue to threaten, 
and the United States continues to retreat, there's no reason why it couldn't happen. Uh, especially as we get further and further away from World War II. I think it would be quite foolish for the U.S. to create the conditions where, I mean, clearly Japan doesn't want that to happen. They don't want no. to build nuclear weapons. That is not their preference. But so why not it's, they've come to the not- point, uh, yeah, they've, they've come to the point where it's like, we have to start thinking about this because mm-hmm. we might have to. Right. <laughs> we might actually have to. Yeah. And I completely agree. It would, it would be foolish on our part, and we shouldn't want that. The Japanese themselves don't want it. Exactly. Um, I mean, it's hard enough keeping countries that do want to build nuclear weapons from doing it. Yeah. But Abe was a guy who did not just reflexively reject the possibility. Right. He basically said, look, we don't want to have to consider it. <laughs> But we have the technology, and we're going to maintain the technology, you know? And even that is a form of deterrence, because he has to start thinking about deterrence. China's getting too strong. Yeah. Well, Abe is on the way out. He is. So what does the future hold for Japan? Yeah, like who who might succeed Abe? The answer is most likely this guy, Suga. Ah, Suga, who is yes, Suga, and I forget his first name. We should look at, we should look at that right now. Let's see, Shinzo Abe Suga, Yoshihiro. Yes, Yoshihide Suga. Yoshihide. Yes, who is increasingly reported to be most likely Shinzo Abe's successor as leader of Japan, prime minister, and he's called Japan's Mister Fix It. <laughs> Stop the search. I think we found the right guy. Yeah, Mr. Fix-It. Yeah, get him in there. It's like, we want that. From what I've read, this guy Suga has been Abe's right-hand man for a long time and is unlikely to do anything, much of anything different than Abe. And the same goes for all the other competitors to the prime ministership. They're all from the same party, Mm -hmm. the Liberal Democratic Party, which for the most part has held power in Japan for the entirety of the post-war period. They're all pretty similar. They have pretty similar views. And Abe's policies up until coronavirus were pretty popular, and they seemed to be working. They seemed appropriate for the country. Mm -hmm. All of this to say, yeah, these guys have different personalities. They'll have different styles. Are they going to do things like radically differently? Probably not. Right. Policy-wise, they're similar. And with Abe retiring now, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that this does away with the necessity to have a general election. Or put another way, one year from now, which was going to be the end of Abe's term, there was certainly going to be a general election. So this allows for the possibility of someone who Abe wants to take over for him getting in there without needing to be elected. Exactly. Yeah, that's totally right. They'll get a head start and an opportunity to prove themselves to voters before the general election. Mm. Or not, as the case may be. They may screw up, yeah. and you know the, some other party could win. But, but it's unlikely. they might be wanting to give someone particularly that opportunity. Yeah, so that some other factional candidate within his party does not uh, gain the prime ministership. I think that's right. 
he wants somebody who will continue his policies, and Suga seems to be that guy. So, yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's also fair to say that whoever succeeds Abe, like Japan, again, needs to continue doing the stuff that Abe started to do, right? Mm -hmm. They need to continue to allow more immigration. In particular. The population is literally shrinking. Yeah. Like, there are fewer people <laughs> each year in Japan. Yes. Yeah. But Young Japanese. I mean, that doesn't work for very long. No, they're well under repl replacement rate. Young Japanese don't have sex or date anymore. It's like a whole cultural shift where they stay in their rooms and go online and look at pornography and like do not have relationships. Like this is an actual thing in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> and it's pretty bad. Wow. Yeah, so they need to continue to liberalize and open up to immigration, or J Japan will disappear as a country. Its population is projected to fall to 83 million people, which is still a lot but by the end of the century. Like 160 million? or No, it's 126. So like 50 million fewer, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's yeah, 43 million. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's falling by a third, basically. And that's by the end of this century. And by also by the end of the century, if, if trends don't change, 35% will be over 65. So they'll have even fewer productive mm -hmm. people in the labor force to support the massive population of elderly. Like the economics just won't work. None of that works, yeah. So they need None of that works. They need a higher birth rate, or arguably they should could use a higher birth rate. And yes. They could certainly use more immigration. Yeah. What this means is that Japan is either going to open up and become like a multi-ethnic democracy, which it has never been. Right. That would be uh, a, a brand new version of Japan. Yeah. Like a liberal Japan. In the, in the like the Western sense, right? Mm. Japan is liberal in some ways, but not racially or ethnically. So, you know, Japan several decades from now might look more like the United States or Canada in terms of having way more non-Japanese living there and, you know, creating businesses and having families, stuff that Japan needs a lot to make Japan great again, as it were. It won't be the same Japan, but that's kind of the point. And I suppose the other thing we should expect is China continue to grow stronger and more assertive, which means that Japan has to do something about it, right? That's going to happen without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah, they're already on that path. And the big question here is, are the Japanese ever going to accept a return to actual military operations. Are they going to be willing to use their military like a military? I can't predict the future necessarily, but I just, as one guy, think it's likely that they will eventually accept a return yeah. to military operations. I they think so too. I think eventually see a threat become more and more threatening over time. Exactly. Yeah, I think it'll take, as you say, several more decades. Um, but that's several more decades further away from World War II, right? And 
in some respects, they've done a good job of like preserving that memory. If you've been to Hiroshima, for instance, they do a very careful job of preserving that memory. And they, in fact, train people, specially, to recount the stories of the atomic bombing survivors that are still alive. Hmm. That's like a formal training that takes a year to tell the stories properly hmm. for this reason. That's the proper way to do that, I would think. Yeah, I think so too. Like basically, what is it? It's like ancestral memory or, or cultural word, right? Yeah. Memory. <laughs> exactly. But on the other hand, like they may have no choice the way things are headed. But this won't become apparent for decades, probably. <laughs> you think it'll be that long, huh? Yeah, I, th- I think it'll take at least 20 years. Yeah. Well, it, it definitely sounds like it's pretty clear what Japan needs in order to turn around some of the trends that have been happening since 1991. Exactly. And Abe was the guy that was kind of the turning point. He was the guy that kicked this stuff off. Mm-hmm. He saw the need for it, and he got it rolling. That's right. And, and this is one of the world's biggest, most powerful, and most important countries. And the U.S.'s most important ally. So, Pretty incredible. Yeah. And one has to imagine, or I have to imagine, that if Joe Biden happens to win in November, U.S.-Japan relations will take a turn for the more supportive from the U.S. end again. I think so. Certainly in terms of providing security guarantees and stuff like that, yeah. Improving extended deterrence. Right. Those things and then the TPP. Yes, as uh, well. Who knows if the U.S. would join the TPP. Does the TPP still exist? It does still exist. It just doesn't have the United States in it. Right. (laughs) U.S. could theoretically join... Um, but it could rejoin. Absolutely. I think Japan and all the other countries in that agreement, Australia, Vietnam, so on, would be stoked I think to so. have the Americans. <laughs> yeah, they're just waiting for us to get with the program or back with the program, as the case may be. We shall see if that we happens. We shall see. All right. All right I man. think that wraps Japan, right, Pete? That's right, Steve. Good talking to you, man. Likewise, my brother. Till next week, huh? All right, dude. Talk to you next week. All right. Bye. Bye.